0: Patrons, we are back. Patreon,
1: Patreon, Patreon.
0: Going to sit
1: back in my lawn. (laughs) Patreon.
0: Welcome back, patrons. It's been a while, and uh, we're
1: trying,
0: trying to get you uh, some (laughs) exclusive content. Get you what you're paying for. So instead of Dumping this lovely jewel out for the regular public. We decided you would be our public this week. We're talking yeah. about the missing 411 again, but this time we're diving into the kids that disappeared from locked cars. We want Which to is very fucking
1: strange.
0: Extremely yeah. fucking strange. We want to welcome back a Miss. Joyce Brandon, welcome back to Patreon, Miss Brandon, and then we also want to welcome in Miss Dana Smith. Thank yeah. you, thank you, thank you.
1: please uh uh spread our word, you know the more patreons we can get, the more I don't have to work <laughs> <laughs>
0: That's right. If y'all could just get 25 $3 tiers each, we would be set. And if they want to be $10 tiers, they can. We're just saying. So we are rocking and rolling this evening. It's been raining thunderstorms up here around the old basement. Hopefully everyone out there in patron land is safe and sound. We want to give a round of applause. For everyone that said a prayer to our boy, Heater, uh, he is, of course, always the gentleman saying not to pray for him because he's out of the woodwork, and he is wanting everyone to shift those prayers to all the families in eastern Kentucky because they are suffering from flash floods right now. So, but uh, I did speak with heater via text message and he did listen to our episode where we talked about the difference between regular and bacterial pneumonias. And he said bacterial pneumonia is like a bad acid trip for 10 days that he argued with people swearing that he had actually done things and had conversations that he did not have. It's crazy, man. It's crazy out there.
1: I am certainly glad he's on the men though.
0: Yes, we all are.
1: He's a very, uh, very big supporter.
0: Yes, yes. And I do believe that if the coach and I make our way to Kentucky, I think we'll get a tour of the old bourbon trail no one has ever seen before.
1: <laughs> well. Uh,
0: I don't need to threaten I, you with a good time, do I?
1: Honestly. <laughs> I am freaking ready, man.
0: <laughs> All right, so let's do it. The first one we're going to talk about is Faye Crawford. Late on the evening of March 26, 1962, Mr. and Mrs. Crawford of Tennessee notices that their one year old daughter is not feeling well and it is getting worse with each passing minute. The parents decide to take her to the doctor. They load her up along with her three year old sister, Faye, and head off into the Tennessee evening. Now, when they get to the doctor's office, the doctor says that the one year old will be fine and prescribes some medicine so the Crawford family loads everybody back up in the family vehicle and they head back home as they pull in the drive the one-year-old is awake and feeling much better since the medicine has had time to kick in her sister Faye however is fast asleep so Mr. and Mrs. Crawford decide it would just be easier to let Faye sleep as they got the one-year-old into the house and off to bed Then they would go back and get Faye and get her ready for bed. So they grab the one-year-old, quietly remove her from the vehicle, gently close the door to the vehicle, and lock the car. They get the little one squared away within about three to five minutes and come back outside to get Faye so they can get her off to bed. As the Crawfords head down the steps toward their vehicle, they do not see Faye. Not alarmed, they both think, Maybe she just slid over and is laying across the seat. Upon reaching the car and unlocking it, they notice Faye is not in the car. Again, not alarmed, they are thinking maybe she had moved to the floorboard and is just not in sight. But upon looking all through the car, Faye is nowhere to be seen. It is as if she simply vanished from inside the locked car. Now remember, the car was locked and all the windows are up. And this is a two-door car back in the 60s. So all you youngins out there don't remember that you'd have to actually push the seat forward to get out of the back of a car.
1: Yeah, this one is this one is by far the most mysterious to me.
0: To make it even more mysterious is the fact that the Crawford's vehicle's inside door handles on the passenger side and the driver's side were both broken, which means you would have had to manually roll the window down, reach out of the window, open the car from the outside to get out of the car, something a three-year-old probably was not dexterous enough to do. Now... Mr. and Mrs. Crawford start frantically looking for Faye and find no clues of her. So they call the police and report her missing. When the police arrive, they begin searching in an outward expanding search from the car. Not long after the search begins, the temperature outside plummets and snow begins to fall. Now remember, this is late March of 62. Undaunted by the conditions however the police and the volunteer searchers keep searching throughout the cold frigid night the next morning around 11 a.m three miles from the Crawford home a barefoot Fay walks to a nearby farm seemingly healthy as a horse. Police would leave the investigation open on the sheer fact that the sheriff could not fathom how a three-year-old girl could have walked through frigid snowy night air, Three air miles from her parents' vehicle seemingly unscathed. When anyone asked Faye what happened, she would just start smiling and laughing.
1: That's the that's the craziest part to me is the fact that she just would laugh.
0: Every time someone would ask her how she went missing, she did the same thing. Just smile and laugh. Like she knows a secret that she's not supposed to tell. That's crazy.
1: I mean, do we know where she's at these days?
0: No, I couldn't find anything. I'm pretty sure.
1: Did she ever talk about it? I mean, that's weird.
0: Yeah. She was three and 62, so she's born in 59. So you're looking, she's in her, what, 70s or 80s, if she's still alive?
1: Yeah, it looks like it.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, crazy. And that's it. I mean, that's all the... Information I could find. And now we're going off of Pilates' missing 411 books. And so we have to take his account of it. And then some basic old newspaper clippings that I ran across basically just detailing the search and rescue operation. But I thought it was extremely odd when you talk about missing 411 cases to have a sheriff that left it open for a little bit of time to see if he could get to the bottom of it. Because normally when you have a missing persons investigation, once the person is found alive or dead, well, especially alive, the investigation's over. They just chalk it up to, Hey, we found them. That's all we were worried about. They're healthy or they're on their way to the hospital and it looks like they're going to make a full recovery. So, Kudos to the sheriff in that rural town, and I don't know the exact town's name. I do apologize, so if anyone out there in Patreon land knows that town's name, you can hit us up, and we can dig a little deeper, maybe. But that is the story of Faye Crawford. Now we get into our second case this evening, and that is Gage Wayman. Now, Paul Wayman was a 37-year-old construction worker living in Salt Lake City, Utah, and Paul had four children from a previous marriage, and unfortunately, his second marriage was headed for divorce as well. Paul and his second wife had a two-year-old son named Gage. Now, since Paul had custody of his other children, he decided to pursue custody of Gage as well. The judge in the case agreed that Paul should have custody of Gage, With Gage being much younger than his four older brothers and sisters, Paul always took Gage with him wherever he could. Now, Gage was two, but he was a 33-pound (laughs) two-year-old. He's playing line in peewees. That's pretty big. (laughs) Yeah, it was. So he looked like he was about four. The pair was pretty much inseparable and were always outdoors, camping, canoeing, hiking, anything they could do. On October 25, 2001, Paul loads Gage up into his truck, buckles him in his car seat, and the two head off to Chalk Creek Basin. Now, the basin is a rugged 8,000-foot-high hunting area with abundant deer, elk, and moose that graze and migrate through the picturesque stands of Golden Aspens. Paul was a member of a hunting club inside the basin, and that hunting club was fenced in. So to access the hunting club, you had to pull through a locked gate with a keypad. Paul pulls up, punches in his code, opens the gate, pulls his truck with Gage still tucked in his car seat through the gate, gets out, locks the gate behind him, and as Paul starts driving down the dirt path headed towards an open meadow he used to use to glass for deer, he notices in his rearview mirror that Gage is fast asleep in his car seat. So as he crests this small hill overlooking the meadow, Paul notices three deer two does and a buck. He had come to scout for the upcoming weekend hunt. And now he notices there are two more deer winding their way through the aspen trees. So Paul had left Gage asleep in his truck once before while he glassed for deer. But that time he had kept his truck in sight and never ventured further than 75 yards with that many deer. In front of him, he decided to see if he could get a good line on where the deer were headed. So he quietly opens the truck door, grabs his binoculars, and quietly shuts the door. Now keep in mind, Gage is buckled safely in his car seat, warm, and in a locked truck. This time, Paul finds himself way beyond the 75 yards that he previously left Gage alone. So as the deer disappear over a ridge, Paul sneaks that way in search of him. While Paul is stalking the deer, two other hunters drive by Paul's truck and see Gage in his car seat, awake and watching them. Thinking Paul was just out of sight, the men continued on, not realizing Paul was nowhere around the truck. All of a sudden, Paul does realize that he's been gone way too long and he starts heading back to his truck. Once he has his truck in sight, he realizes that the door on Gage's side is open and he runs to the truck to find that Gage is nowhere to be seen. So Paul heads toward a nearby pond thinking that since Gage loved water, that is where he would head, but nothing is found. He then starts yelling for Gage, running up and down the ridges and no response. Paul jumps into his truck and heads off to get help. The first deputy on the scene recalls that Paul was crying and vomiting himself and physic or mentally beating himself up over leaving Gage alone. So a huge search is started and the area to search was helped by the fact that the hunting club was fenced in. So you had to have a code to access the gate. The other people on the club at the time of Gage's disappearance was only Paul and Gage. And then the two hunters that saw Gage awake in the car seat. So as the search starts, there are no signs of Gage. The authorities begin looking at the two hunters and Paul. And Paul openly tells the deputies, quote, I'm responsible for his death if he's dead. I'm responsible for his death. I don't think you can put it any other way. I had custody of him. I was supposed to look out for him. He was under my care. End quote. Now authorities realize real quick that Paul is not hiding anything. He's not trying to be shady. He is a distraught father that left his son unattended and now the boy has gone missing.
1: It just doesn't make sense,
0: man. No. Like it's, how how on earth can you disappear like that? Especially a two-year-old. A 33 pound two-year-old. It's not like he's gonna sprint out of sight. <laughs> 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 I so,
1: mean, you're right, but, jeez, like, I, I mean, how do you disappear? How? I Coach, mean
0: we've been asking that for 100, almost 150 episodes.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs>
0: <laughs> for four days, the intense search is launched, and they search everywhere inside the fenced-in hunting club as well as outside the fenced-in area to no avail. Authorities would terminate the search, but Paul's church offered to send an additional 150 volunteers to continue searching for Gage beyond the official police search. One of the searchers was James Wilkes, and he brought his dog along with him named Dino. As James and Dino are searching for Gage, they too get lost and wind up miles away from the search area.
1: Which is very, very strange.
0: Yeah, t- you're talking about within 4 days of each other. You got a little 2-year-old and a grown man and his dog that get that basically are lost.
1: Dogs don't usually get lost. No. Especially when they're on uh like a search, they definitely do not get lost.
0: So, as James and Dino find themselves miles away lost, the weather turns nasty and the temperature drops, and that starts blowing snow. So James and Dino huddle up under a tree to ride the storm out. James would state that that evening was the worst evening he has ever had outdoors. As the sun begins to break the horizon, James and Dino begin walking, and just a short distance later, Dino starts licking something on the ground. James looks down and digs through the snow where Dino had been licking and discovers Gage's body. James digs Gage out and starts carrying him back in the general direction of the search party. Exhausted, James finally comes upon a fence post marking the hunting club perimeter. He places Gage's body next to a fence post and eventually finds the other searchers. When he does, he instructs them where Gage's body is located and they go and retrieve the little boy. Since James was missing from the main search group and he just happened to come back with this wild tale, authorities treat him as a suspect to begin with. He is polygraphed and he passes. He does not tell authorities that when he found Gage, there were a lot of canine tracks around where the body was resting. James knows it was not Dino's tracks because he had basically held on to Dino the entire night before just to stay warm. So investigators are like if there were canine tracks over the area, then the area had previously been searched by authorities and search dogs. And if they had searched it with canines, why did they not alert to Gage's body if it was just under the surface of the snow that had occurred the previous night? The other question is, what if the tracks were not from the rescue canines and they were from something else? And could these tracks have something to do with how Gage wound up that far away from his dad's truck?
1: Yeah, but what were the tracks
0: from? I don't know. (laughs) I don't want to know either, to be honest with you.
1: I do not either.
0: So Paul would spend hours upon hours in his truck trying to figure out how Gage could have gotten out of his car seat and opened the door, something he had never done or even attempted to do before that day. Unfortunately for Paul, charges of neglect were filed against him, and the judge that he had previously went before to get custody was the one that was going to have to hand out the sentencing. Unfortunately, Paul does not show up for his sentencing and would take his own life because of this entire tragic tale. Really? Yeah.
1: Horrifying honestly.
0: <laughs> it is. I mean, just I, you know he beat himself up. If he when the authorities get there, he's vomiting himself and he and he, he's, you know, saying out loud, Look, if he's dead, I I basically it's my fault. I mean, I—it's just one of those things where he was just so grief stricken he couldn't couldn't climb out of it. I hate I hate it that the little boy lost his life, but I also hate it that the the guilt just weighed on him so long that he decided that was the only way out. So yeah, our
1: honestly horrifying, but
0: tragically sad too at the same time. All right, so the third one that we're going to discuss this evening is Lawrence Sullivan. Now, Lawrence was a three-year-old boy who lived in Manhattan, Nevada. Now, Manhattan is located about 150 miles south of Reno. Now, Lawrence loved his uncle, John Sullivan, and John was a gold prospector and would spend hours looking for abandoned claims that he could search over. On October 16, 1930, John and Lawrence head out to look at an area that John thought might be a good place to make a new claim. The area was basically in the middle of nowhere. It has been described that you would take a dirt road until it dead-ended at the base of a hill. From there, you would park your vehicle and climb the hill to look out into the desert valley. This is where John wanted to look and make a plan on where to prospect at. So as John parks his vehicle, he turns Lawrence and tells him that he is going to walk up the hill in front of them, look around, and he'll come right back. And he tells Lawrence, you will be able to see me walking up the hill. And he also tells him to stay in the vehicle. He will be back in just a minute or two. So John gets out and locks the doors. And as John is walking up the hill, he periodically looks back and sees Lawrence. And Lawrence would wave and John would keep walking and wave back. So John gets to the top of the hill, and once again, he looks back at the vehicle, and he sees Lawrence, and Lawrence is waving at him. And John smiles and waves back at him, turns and looks over the valley and walks just out of sight of the vehicle over the hill and checks a couple of little trails no more than a minute or two have passed. And then he decides to head back down the hill towards his vehicle. As he starts down the hill, he looks up, and he sees the door is now open And Lawrence is not in the vehicle anymore. John is not immediately concerned because he has not been gone for more than two or three minutes. And Lawrence is three. He could not have wandered very far from the vehicle. Plus, they're in the middle of nowhere. There is literally nowhere to go. They are in the middle of the Nevada desert and have not seen another person or another vehicle since they began their trip. So John gets to the vehicle and looks in and around and under it, and there is no sign of Lawrence. He begins to yell for Lawrence, and where he was located, his voice carried for a great distance, so he felt if Lawrence could hear his name, he would start heading back to John. After a while, John has no other choice but to head off and get help. He knows that when the sun sets, the temperatures will plummet, and Lawrence was not dressed for a night alone in the Nevada desert. So John gets the sheriff, and together they start a massive search. John is convinced that someone had to have abducted Lawrence because Lawrence knew exactly where John was. If he needed John, he could have just yelled for him. In the first days of the search, the searchers are baffled they cannot find any tracks. It's if the area was void of any animal life. There were no tracks of Lawrence heading away from the vehicle, and strangely enough, there were no other tracks other than John's that headed up and down the hill. Searchers could not find a single animal track. On the second or third day, they do locate Lawrence's hat, but again, there's no footprints leading to or from the hat. So with no leads, newspapers in the area have headlines theorizing that a large eagle could have swooped down and picked Lawrence up and carried him off. This is the only plausible explanation to authorities, as far-fetched as it sounds, because this is the only thing that could explain the lack of footprints and animal tracks and how Lawrence's hat is just found. I think the distance was like a couple of miles from the vehicle. So, police are baffled, and they're not quite ready to write this one off as an eagle abducting a young boy. So, they enlist the help of a Native American tracker to see if he can help the investigation. Once on the scene, the tracker is able to pick up a partial trail of Lawrence. He follows the trail for seven miles, and that is until... He tells authorities that the tracks he is following is leading up a sheer cliff I mean to go seven miles
1: is insane seven Se- flicking miles dude and he's found 1400
0: feet on a on a on a just a little outcropping yeah authorities have to bring in climbing insane. gear. To scale the cliff. And we're not talking about like a 20- or 30-foot cliff. Like Coach said, this cliff is over 1,500 feet high, and around the, about the 1,400 mark, there is a little bitty like rock shelf. And the shelf is where the tracker had stated Lawrence was going to be at. And sure enough, when the climbers reach the shelf, there sits Lawrence. He's tucked up against the Just wa-
1: chilling. I yeah. mean, he's asleep. Just chilling.
0: You know. Seven miles, fifteen hundred feet I mean, up in there.
1: You know, whatever, <laughs> whatevs,
0: whatevs. Mm-hmm. So he's mm-hmm. tucked up against the cliff wall next to this small tree, and like Coach said, he's asleep. What makes it even stranger is that this tree had this curved branch, and it had clearly been placed over Lawrence's neck to keep him pinned to the wall of the cliff. Authorities stated that it appeared as if Lawrence had quote fallen into this trap because if he had moved his head suddenly, the pressure from the limb would have broken his neck. So the climbers bring Lawrence down, and aside from a couple of scratches on his face, he's in perfect health. Lawrence had traveled seven miles and 1,400 feet up a cliff that adults needed climbing gear to ascend, along with the fact that he spent a week in the desert, through the blistering heat of the day and the frigid cold air of the nights, only to come out with a couple of scratches on his face. That makes
1: zero, zero sense.
0: This has to be the weirdest one I've ever read. I mean, there, he's... it's, It's amazing to me. I mean, it literally is like someone plucked him up next to the car and his hat falls off during a flight seven miles away, and then they just drop him on a little rock cliff and tuck him in behind a limb. I don't know, man.
1: It does not.
0: (laughs) Yeah, we cannot overstate that enough. But anyway. All right, so our last installment for the missing 411 kids this evening is Jimmy Duffy. Now, on October the 19th, 1973, James and Carol Duffy decide to go camping with their two children, Jimmy, who was two, and his sister, Natalie, who was just over one year old, along with their two cats. The family heads to Lake Wenatchee near the Little Wenatchee Ridge. Once getting their camper set up, the family decides to take a little walk around the area and little Jimmy starts acting like a little two-year-old. And he's misbehaving, so Carol reaches down, pops him on the rear to get him to stop acting like an idiot. You know, nothing out of the ordinary in the 70s. Spare the rod, spoil the child back then, boys and girls. So James and Carol decide, look, this is miserable. He obviously needs a nap, so we're just going to take the two kids back to the camper, and they put them down for a nap. So Carol gets the kids inside the RV, gets them tucked in for a nap, The two cats are in there. She exits the RV, shuts and locks the door. James decides that he wants to go scout out a place to go hunting, and Carol says that she will hang back and walk around the lake so that she can keep an eye on the RV in case the kids wake up from their nap early. So after about 15 minutes of scouting, James heads back to the camper to check on the kids and finds them fast asleep. Now Carol sees James do this from her vantage point near the lake. James circles the clearing, which was approximately 150 yards from the camper, when he hears what he describes as either a scream or a screech come from the camper. Carol also hears this, and they both run to a point where they can clearly see the camper, and they see that the door is standing wide open. James and Carol run to the camper and find the camper door open, But little Natalie, the one-year-old, is still asleep with the cats also asleep inside. But Jimmy is nowhere to be found. James immediately checks the tracks beside the clearing and Carol checks the road. They both find zilch. It's approximately 2.15 p.m. in the afternoon and roughly an hour later, a little bit after 3, deputies from the Chilean county sheriff's office arrive and notify search and rescue personnel now searchers could not find any prints in the dirt roads that matched and at 4:20 p.m james arrived back at the camper from searching and stated that he had not found his son roughly five minutes later deputies re-interviewed carol and asked her again to explain the circumstances of the disappearance she does At 5 p.m., deputies interview James again, and he repeats the circumstances of Jimmy's disappearance again. He states that the sound he heard coming from the area of the camper could have been something similar to a baby's cry. The following day, canines are brought in, and the area is thoroughly searched for Jimmy. They find nothing. For five days following Jimmy's disappearance, Searchers perform a massive grid search. The search included 150 men, including rescue units, several search and rescue teams, official search and rescue teams, and the sheriff's posse. Now, if you don't know what the sheriff's posse is, it's kind of like a volunteer. It's kind of like search and rescue, but for more, I guess... Counties that don't have a lot of rural things. It's it's similar to the Civil Air Patrol where you kind of mobilize the civilians to go look for plane crashes. But
1: but honestly, think they would find something.
0: You do. Helicopters are also brought into the area to search the cliffs and a small valley. The search produced no evidence of Jimmy Duffy's location. At 8.30 p.m. on October 24th, the lead deputy from the Chilean County Sheriff's Department calls James aside. He tells James that he didn't believe his story about his son's disappearance and thought that the child had never been in the area. He also told James that he thought the child had been accidentally or intentionally killed and disposed of, and that is what really happened, and him and his wife are trying to do a cover-up.
1: I mean, to think that, I mean, I really don't want to think. I i really do not want to think that the parents were involved.
0: No, I don't either. And and there's not any evidence leading you to believe that they would be those type of people anyway. So the deputy then asked him if his wife had a boyfriend to which he replied, not that I know of. And at 1130 AM the following morning, the formal search operations were terminated. Now, during the extensive follow-up search conducted by the Chilean County Sheriff's Office, one witness described Jimmy Duffy as mentally disabled with a very frail build. Most of the witnesses stated that they rarely saw the boy outside the Duffy's home when they start interviewing people back at their physical residence. It is further realized that Jimmy basically cannot do much of anything by himself and needs assistance with everyday tasks. It's obvious from the reports that Chilean County Sheriff's Department did a very extensive follow-up by contacting the Duffy's neighbors, friends, and Child Protective Services. They also attempted to locate evidence of violence against Jimmy, but again, nothing is found. They're squeaky clean. Yeah, I, I, I honestly don't think they're involved. No, I, I don't either. At one point, investigators requested that Carol and James take a polygraph test. Now, this is back in the 70s, and I still wouldn't have done it. I wouldn't do it today either. But they do. And 12 days after their son went missing in the mountains of Washington, James and Carol Duffy were seated in a police interview room taking a polygraph in an effort to clear their names. Hell no. No, that's what I'll I said. Never take a polygraph. Um, especially back then when you're reading tea leaves. Yeah. <laughs> Now, polygraph experts from the Seattle Police Department were brought in to question the Duffies and administer the polygraph. Both parents took the polygraph simultaneously in different rooms. In a report written by Matske and Gillespie of Seattle's Police Department's polygraph unit, they stated the following after interviewing both parents. Quote, each subject was given a polygraph examination and it is the opinion that Mr. and Mrs. Duffy do not know the whereabouts of their son, Jimmy, nor did they conspire with each other to cause the disappearance, end quote. The passing of the polygraph hopefully focuses the Chilean County Sheriff's Office on finding Jimmy rather than building a case against his parents. So with the epiphany of Jimmy's frail and mental state, we are left with how could a two-year-old who has trouble dressing himself and moving around open the camper door and just disappear? The plausible explanation would be abduction. What? No, yeah, he can't. But you would think he was abducted. But with the authorities getting to the campground so quickly, they were able to lock that campground down and they accounted for everyone in the park while the Duffys were there. Everyone in the park had an alibi that completely checked out, and to this day, Jimmy Duffy is still missing, and nobody knows where he went or what happened to him.
1: God, oh, my God, that's crazy.
0: All of these are crazy, but, I mean, it's like those last two, man, are just... We hope you enjoyed this little dabble back into the missing 411. I did want to discuss, we got an email late this evening while I was trying to get some dinner and Coach was trying to make his way home. Um, (laughs) Mr. Nathan Bale emailed us about the Japanese SOS episode, and he said that his theory is maybe the person or people that found the bones piled them up and made the sign. Maybe they were supposed to be there or there was a reason they couldn't go to the authorities themselves. That is a very good theory.
1: I mean, it is a good theory, but good Lord. I mean, I don't know, man.
0: Good news for those of you that have been following us for a while and any of our listeners that has kept up with the Rebecca Gould case, the uh, piece of doo-doo that they arrested out, in Oregon for her murder that supposedly confessed was found mentally competent to stand trial. And the original pathologist that performed her autopsy has been subpoenaed and stated that he would have to testify either in late October or early November. So that would lead one to believe that is when the trial would begin on the Rebecca Gould murder case. Wasn't that Fami Malik? I don't see. I don't remember. I think, I think it had to be. But Jen Buchholz is the one I that mean, gave that information sure, out. Surely, surely she would know. He's dead by now. now I think Fami's still alive. Really? I really think Fami's alive. Hell, it's Patreon. They're worth a Google. Let's see. <laughs> Fami Malik. Oh, you're right, Coach. You were right. He passed away in Clearwater, Florida. Uh, about August the 20th of 2018. So that wasn't him.
1: Good riddance.
0: Mm-hmm. He passed away in clear water. I wonder if he was clear from the Scientologists. <laughs> <laughs> well, we cannot thank you patrons enough for your hard-earned money. We know times are tough, especially with the economy. And every month that you can keep contributing is another huge month that you help us out.
1: I just want to note that I have never seen one single dime from the Patreons.
0: <laughs> Keeps this podcast afloat is what I can tell you.
1: <laughs>
0: well, I mean, you knew the Lord's word. <laughs> well, I'm glad you think so. Well, Coach, you got anything else? Oh, you know I don't. Deuces.